listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high-quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, 10, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today in the show, we have Tony Greer. Tony is the editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter. He managed currency and commodity risk for Sumimoto Bank, UBS, and Goldman Sachs throughout the 1990s. He operated an equity sales trading franchise from several shops on Wall Street from 2000 to 2016 until he launched his own publication and research product. The only constant along 30 years of institutional trading has been Tony's daily written commentary on markets, currently known as the Morning Navigator Newsletter. This daily note reaches over a thousand market professionals on a daily basis and impacts the lives of many others. Enjoy my conversation with Tony Greer. Tony, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question I like to start out with is what you were doing back in 2008, the global financial crisis. Up until that time, we had SNL, we had LTCM, but nothing like 2008, the worst crisis since the Great Depression. So take us back to that time and what you were doing professionally and if it changed your view on markets. Uh, yeah, it definitely did. Um, you know, at the time I was an equity sales trader, I was managing the equity trading desk at a small Israeli bank called Bank Hapalim with a great team of about five, six sales traders. 
Um, and at the time we, um, you know, the desk was extremely busy and we had tons of stuff going on. We did a lot of customer business. Um, I would say, uh, it, it was, I think the first thing that everybody, um, sort of came to grips with was that we were, you know, in for something different with, you know, Hank Paulson coming on the television every day, like a cadaver and sort of, you know, narrating the the story of what was going on. And I remember it being a super, super negative and scary time for sure. So, you know, we can start from there and, uh, and go right ahead. But I can tell you that our, our hands were full executing a lot of business during that time for both mutual funds and hedge funds. It was an exciting time to be on a trading desk. Yeah, so let's go back and talk a little bit about some of the risks that were happening. Did you find it to be a time where, I mean, it was a really confusing time, obviously a scary time, but on the desk, you know, looking back as far as the trades that were going on compared to now, I mean, can you draw any parallels or like, how are you looking at it from a trading perspective as far as obviously some of the fears back then and some of the issues were more in line with the bank's balance sheets. And now we have you know, corporates and sovereigns and leverage in different areas. But can yeah. you draw any parallels there? Well, I guess, you know, it was interesting that the, that the financials were at the center of the crisis and it was affecting, you know, the entire market, the whole stock market. So that was interesting. Um, you know, it was uh, it was very much, you know, the bond traders were all, if I can, you know, if I recall, the bond traders were all well ahead of the down move, right? So in sort of 2007 and into 2008, um, we had all of our credit trading clients telling us like, man, the S&P is going to have to wake up and smell the coffee to what's going on in the bond market. You know, and, and for us, that was a great heads up, you know, on equity desk, because for a while there, the equity market was kind of sailing along, um, you know, not bothered by it. And, and sort of having that red light from the credit guys is always, you know, the most important thing since they're going to start to see cracks in the market first, you know, either in the credit markets or um, in the money markets, you know, where in actually at an actual liquidity situation. So it's interesting to see that we're sort of back in um you know, with different, very different types of liquidity concerns, you know, we're, and we're now on the other side of, a, of several rounds of quantitative easing. Um, I think it's worth noting that when we started that uh, back in 2000, I guess it was 09 technically, right, that we started QE. Um, yeah, I would say that the initial reaction that I literally fell for hook, line and sinker, um, and, you know, it's just one of those things that you have to go back and look at and say, man, did I get this wrong? But I was expecting hilarious inflation, you know, like like we were just expecting a massive, massive dollar devaluation period. We were expecting, you know, other currencies to be rallying against the dollar, which we would thought was going to create a massively, you know, commodity inflation type of atmosphere that could potentially trickle down into consumer markets and that we would potentially be paying ridiculous amounts for our gasoline and our supermarket bill. So that was something that was uh, a really, really enlightening time for me when, you know, I really thought on paper, you know, when, when you sort of had guys telling you to read about the Weimar Republic 
and things like that, you know, you'd go home, you go back and do your homework and realize that like, wow, this could really happen here. Like, this is crazy, you know, and you're not assigning a hundred percent probability to it, but you, you have to say, okay, well, I got to pull my head out of under this rock now and assign some probability that we could have really serious inflation issue. And that's something that I lived through actually being, you know, um, 50 years old. Now I was, uh, alive in a toddler during the sort of, you know, inflation in the seventies and remember some of the effects like that. And I remember, you know, waiting online on odd and even days for gas, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the memory of that just sort of, you know, clicks it back on and you get scared. So that was when we all started piling into gold and it got, that became a super power, a super, um, popular trade super quickly. I would say, you know, as soon as the Fed turned the printer on, everybody was scrambling to get their hands on some level of physical gold um, to be prepared for this inflationary move. And then, you know, over time, I would say over two years as, um, you know, like I used to say in 2011, when gold was peaking, we were literally trading physical coins in the street outside of our office at $1,900 a clip. <laughs> you know, and I mean, and that was really, and I was involved in that too. I mean, I was, I had been, I mean, I had gold coins from, you know, the 400. So I, you know, this is all an exciting thing for me. And, but I will say that we ran into the brick wall of understanding exactly how deflationary technology has been. Right. And it's funny you mentioned that during the 70s, I've heard some interesting stories and funny stories about people switching their license plates yep. in order to uh, get in line for gas because certain digits of the license plate, starting with something like that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah. And my dad and his friends were uh, from the Bedford-Stuyvesant area of Queens. And, you know, in their circles, they weren't afraid to just siphon somebody's gas in an emergency. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'll be totally honest. Now, you, you know, just sign of the times. Go. Now, you mentioned the bond market uh, back then being this impetus for looking ahead at maybe equities being mispriced. When you look at the bond market now and you look at negative yielding, sovereign around the world, call it 15 to 17 trillion range. And you look at you know, where yields are, obviously US is the you know, best house on the worst uh, type of neighborhood type of thing. But when you look at yields, a lot of people have been talking about, okay, this is, you know, bond market is pricing in this kind of disaster scenario. And when you look at equities, you know, they're still running. We saw yields kind of come up a little bit yesterday. How are you looking at this from a trading perspective and, and reconciling uh, the equity markets and, and fixed income? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Ryan. I, I, you know, this is a case, I think, of how the Fed is pushing investors out the yield curve. Um, you know, excuse me, out the risk curve. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I feel like when you say, how do you look at the bond market now? You know, when I, the way I look at it is that it's pointing me to the equity market right now. So, you know, when I see U.S. yields, you know, get as low as they got, let's just use the 10-year yields for our baseline to, so we can stay in line here. And so say when I see U.S. 10-year yields down to 1.5%, um, you know, and you look around the world at the global yield picture and you see, you know, there's zero in Japan you know, and zero across Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And so with these yields, you know, you automatically look into the high yield market and the stock market and then look at some of the dividends, you know, and you see sectors like, you know, um, utility sector rallying, you know, for the last year really sharply in that grab for yield just because there's such high paying dividend stocks, you know, and it used to be the kind of thing where utilities would trade, um, you know, sort of opposite bond yields. So if yields were going higher, 
people were selling out of utilities and if yields were going lower, people were buying into utilities. Now, utilities are just a higher yield than everything on the board. So they are just up and to the right for the last year. So that's been like an, 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 you know, an interesting little underlying dynamic of the market. Um, but like I said, it pushes you know with yields this low in the United States. I rather rather than go out the curve, I rather just go into the equity market and you know pick apart some names. But I do have a very strong view at the moment that we got way 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 ahead of ourselves down at one and a half percent in the ten year. We got way ahead of ourselves. Um, I didn't really participate in this, so I should change my pronoun there. The market got ahead of itself, looking for a recession. Um, which there was no obvious signs of aside from a very typical slowdown in manufacturing that takes place after running hot for so long. So um, what I see now as a very um, a sort of complicated picture that I think you can boil down quite simply, you know, we had Powell come in and say that he was, you know, look, looking hawkish, like he was going to try to raise rates. And the president put the immediate squash on that, right? So he got the three rate, uh, he got the rate cuts out of Jerome Powell that he wanted. Um, you know, he's trying to keep us, as Trump says, in line with the rest of the world, because he's pointing to everybody else that has low to no interest rates. And he's having an effect on the Fed chairman, unfortunately, who doesn't feel like having his name dragged through the newspaper every day. So he put the cuts on the tape realizing that the U.S. economy probably didn't need them. We go ahead and price in cuts. We price in a recession. The yield curve tumbles into negative, tori- negative territory for literally a cup of coffee and goes springing out of it. And now we have yields rising and commodities rallying again. And we have yields rising and commodities rallying again because we just put out a better than expected third quarter GDP number. We are putting you know, our manufacturing sector has already stopped sliding. It's already leveling off here. And like lastly, it, it, uh, the consumer has been rock solid through the whole entire um, situation. So I feel like now the stock market has got to catch up to the fact that there is really no recession worth you know discussing. Um, the whole head fake of the yield curve diving into negative territory, you know, that that was for 31 days that the yield curve was in negative territory. And in recessions past, it's been in negative territory for one year, two years, you know, as the recession starts kicking in. And that's yeah. just that's just nowhere near the type of situation that we're looking at right now. So everybody's, you know, all these portfolio managers that were underweighted equities and probably overweighted bonds and overweighted gold. Um, are now going to have to adjust themselves and they're going to have to sort of sell out the treasuries, sell out gold, because as the global bond market backs off, so does the negative yield pool. And so therefore, then net gold is going to go down with it. And people realize they don't have enough stocks on for an economy that is really running, you know, that that hasn't even taken a a real dip aside from the little slowdown in manufacturing due to tariffs. And so if they're going to talk about tariff solutions, you know, you have to start thinking that the stock market is just going to price in a full tariff solution and go to the next level. So that's what I'm planning for now. Right. And you mentioned as far as equities, U.S. equities, how are you looking at markets around the world? Obviously, U.S. equities are priced pretty richly. You can debate on on the different metrics, but, you know, talk to us a little bit about looking at those, these equity markets through a trading lens as far as you mentioned quantitative easing and and kind of the accommodative policies. Yeah. um, I would say playing the equity market, Ryan, I am um, 
I've contracted my view as the president has become a protectionist of thinking that there were other centers outside of the U.S. that I needed to be exposed to in equities to realizing that the U.S. equity game is a robust enough game for me to be playing in both from an investment side and from an aggressive and I mean very aggressive equity trading side. So it's been like, you know, we've gotten um, let me think, let me think of how I want to frame it. I just feel like given the given given the sectors, we've got sectors that are rallying and we've got we got, so let's call it this. We've got sectors that are rallying like semiconductors and technology and utilities and consumer products. We've got sectors that can't get off the mat, like airlines and industrial metals. Um, you know, anything connected to the base metal market, anything connected to steel and iron ore has generally been in a straight downtrend, right? All of these things took place when we weren't expecting any inflation. We have sort of, uh, you know, a diving yield curve and now things are changing quite a bit. So I want to start looking at rotating aggressively within these sectors, just like I did, um, you know, to get prepared for the, for the run in, in utilities and the run in consumer staples and the run in technology, I feel like some of that's going to change. And I feel like there's going to be a chance now that you might see the base metal stocks rally a little bit on a more inflationary tone. There's maybe a chance that we'll see transports, which have been sideways for two years, you know, start to run. I think it's really interesting to me that um, the industrial, industrial sector has taken out its um, entire sort of high range and that's starting to break out to new highs and financials are trying to do the same thing as the yield curve goes back to steepening and as we price in inflation in the markets. So I'm really um, I'm really on my toes in terms of trying to stay on my toes and stay ahead of these sectoral rotations and sort of be in the ones now that I think will be in favor for the next, I don't know, three to six months, we can call it as the equity market catches up. And I, I you know, I have taken my eye off of the other global locations because since Trump started in March of 2018 with the tariffs, you know, the US has just been the clear leader. And I feel like some of the other markets are so challenged. Like I don't like trading European equities because there's always my I, my always fear is that I'm going to wake up to a terrible European banking headline um, that's going to mm-hmm. just, you know, derail my position for no reason. So I don't like the European center. Um, I would never do anything in Japan except buy stocks in front of the BOJ if I got a chance. And I really don't get a chance to do that that often. That's not my kind of game. You know, so like I said, I feel like the U.S. center is um, robust with opportunities. You know, you've got sectors like um, software and um, medical devices that have just been on such great multi-year trends that, I, I you know, I'm kind of why I continue to watch those sectors and trade them and buy them on dips and sell them on rallies. And that kind of thing has been good to me. So I'm going to kind of continue with that type of plan, um, really dialing down into the sectors and their rotations and, you know, how I think they'll be affected by this move in commodities and move in interest rates that I'm anticipating. But I'm very certain right now that yields are are on U.S., for example, U.S. 10-year yields. We've just broken through um, a set of trend lines and a set of moving averages that I think will take 10-year yields above 2% for the rest of the year. So we'll see what happens with that. 
Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people were looking for that breakout um, a while back when the 30-year was right at that 3.20, mm-hmm. um handle there. And then we, we, we maybe broke above it for a day or two, and then we, we couldn't hold. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it looks like, as you mentioned, on the 10-year, we're, we're seeing some, some strength there um, or weakness as far as yields you know, coming up. Um, how are you looking at this as far as you know, balancing this between something that might happen to cause a, a rush back into long-term treasuries? So it, it sounds like what you're talking about is kind of that organic growth mm-hmm. and um, yields kind of coming up and then you know, equities doing, doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this a case of, of putting, some, let's say, risk bucket equities it may be gold, maybe real assets, and then fixed income on the other side, where where that's kind of going to be the the losing trade. Yeah, you know, and and it was, uh, for example, I thought that the gold trade was, um, you know, for for the readers of my newsletter, I'm I'm pretty t- I'm time stamped and at a pretty good time getting into the gold market. Um, And I really felt like we saw that clearly where, you know, the bond market was going to rally. The pool of negative yields had broken out to a new level. Like, you know, it would have been capped at around, let me think, I think the number was around 12 or 13 trillion. And we broke out to, you know, new highs with this new crazy bond rally toward, like you said, you mentioned the high of 17 trillion or so. And now we've backed all the way off to 12 you know, and that's all because, you wow. know, yeah, it's a significant move, right? And so I would think that gold would be even lower um, given that we backed off so far in the pool of negative yields. But I think why gold hasn't is because, you know, the ECB pivot was back to even more dovishness. The Bank of Japan is showing no signs of being anything but dovish. China continues to lend money and keep liquidity in the markets, you know, even as their defaults rise. Here in the U.S., the same thing. You know, no matter what type of liquidity is necessary, whether it's repo window or lower rates or whatever, we seem to be accommodating that. So, you know, I eventually think that you know we'll get to a point where the economy does slow down and weaken, and then you'll see bond markets rally and gold rally again. But I think that gold is hanging in there at this point because I'm a little bit off topic now. I know, but I think gold is hanging in there at this point because of the continued monetization, even though the size of the negative yield pool has shrunk the sort of range and scope of central bank monetization has not changed. And I think alongside that, you've got this sort of kicker of all this unrest all around the world that probably will lend a relatively decent bid to gold, in my opinion, you know, somewhere here above 1400. Right. And when you're looking at yields rising, are you expecting this to be kind of a slow and gradual process or are you expecting maybe the long end of the curve to to really get away maybe having those expectations flip into that inflationary environment we've had this long 30 plus year bond bull market and people are talking about when is that shift finally going to happen yeah well that's a good point you know it's hard to say it's difficult to say whether the global bond rally is over because at least what's interesting is that we seem to be sort of um stepping on the third rail of that expanding negative yield pool where sort of philosophically in finance people are like they can't get their heads around it they can't get their heads around how you know, these, mm-hmm. there are European companies now with yet negative yield and, and the market just seems to reject that. So it's going to be difficult for this 
you know, forever bond rally to go on ad infinitum if we keep, you know, buzzing our, the markets keep buzzing themselves on the third rail and pulling back every time we get this massive pile of negative yield and debt. So that's going to be interesting to price in. I think right now, like I said, you know, like we've, we've just been in this conversation talking about yields rising. And the first thing you said was, do you think it's going to ask me if it was going to be a gradual rise? And I still think that we're due for a spike of a yield rise, meaning like I feel like the bond bulls have been too comfortable for too long. They've been in control. Now there's been a full consolidation at the top. They're starting to curl over. And I don't think there's been one sort of capitulation day where you've seen one really big day where it's like, obviously, the guys are getting out of treasuries because we're looking at inflation, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I still expect there to be a washout of yields higher, bonds lower uh, before this move ends. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the, the in terms of the secular bond market, you know, I, I just, you know, I sit up in my chair at those times when we're pushing against the highs and, you know, German yields are all in negative territory out 10 years, et cetera, et cetera. And you say, man, what is going to reverse this? And the reality is, is that somehow the economy keeps coming alive underneath it and, um, you know, sort of banging the, uh, the bond market off the highs. But it's going to be tough to see what eventually stops this bull and, you know, turns the market over completely where we're seeing a global yield rise for any extended period of time. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things to look at is having yields, U.S. yields become normalized and and also all over the world. But before 2008, we had tenure around, I think it was 5-6% during that ramp up. And obviously, people argue, okay, you can go back in history and look at many different periods and argue about kind of what is a normalized Mm -hmm. yield. But I think a lot of people have been looking at various inputs into the economy as far as people wanting to borrow and the willingness to to borrow and that question and which is a central theme of the podcast about okay if you have rates at one percent and you cut them to 50 bips or Mm -hmm. zero and you're cutting negative it actually maybe has the opposite effect and causes more fear into the market whereas if you're at you know five percent and you cut you know down to four and a half or whatever the case is then it's it actually does incentivize the borrowing a little bit more so i guess the question there is how are you looking at this as far as people reaching for yield, um, and well, as you mentioned, reaching out on the risk curve to achieve higher returns, obviously it's pushed up asset prices, not really in the way people thought it would, would as far as inflation and CPI, but how are you looking at, at that you know, reach for yield? Well, it's the kind the reach for yield produces these headlines that are really tough for your head to get around. You know, when it re- when it reaches its peak, you know, you start like like we mentioned, we start seeing you know crazy things like Mexican high yield is only yielding four percent, four and a half percent. You know, mm-hmm. and there's unrest all over the place, and you know, it seems like a totally risky political situation, and yet the you know the high yield there is only four or five percent. That's crazy to me. You know, it seems crazily underpriced. And, you know, you can look at some of the credits in the high yield market and think the same thing, that they're crazy underpriced. Um, But I'm not smart enough to know when that's going to end. You know, it's kind of just a regime that you have to kind of know is going on and, you know, make sure that in smart times you're staying out of the way. You know, it feels like right now, like we just said, with, you know, with risk assets that we're going to head for a period where there's going to be very little standing in the way of, you know, sort of commodities rallying, stocks rallying um, and things like that. So... I always try to sort of level myself with the housing market 
um, if that's fair, Ryan, when it comes to rates and see sort of how the mar- housing market is responding to either lower or higher rates. And mm-hmm. it feels like the housing market has been incredibly resilient, even with, yeah, the, with right? Like even given given the sort of volatility of, of call it whatever, the, the, well, we'll talk at the 10-year, you know, even up at three and a quarter, the housing market was strong. Then we had rates back off to one and a half percent over 10 years. And we saw mortgage applications this year are an outlier year in the last 10 years, right? So there is real, real bid for, for mortgages and for money at this price. And then you go read all the headlines in the newspaper and all you read about is that millennials aren't buying homes. Yeah. And then all you're reading about in the economic headlines is that home inventories are diving of existing homes and new inventory. And, you know, there are constant, you know, new um, new builds being signed up. So I'm trying to figure out in my head, you know, if the millennials aren't buying, but the price of money is cheap, but the inventory is going down, but housing sales are really strong. It's been really hard picture for me to put together, but I still come up with the housing market is fairly strong across the board. Yeah. And with rates being so low, obviously that affordability factor. Yeah. It um, changes but- everything. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's also a lot of issues with supply and, and new housing starts and being supply being constrained. Yeah. Um, and when you look at, you know, the possible possibility for inflation down the road, having, you know, real assets, whether it's real estate gold. Right. Many, many people have talked about that. But going back to what you talked about as far as risk assets and especially U.S. equities. There's been a thesis out there from Jeremy Grantham, I know is one, many others talking about kind of this melt-up scenario, and we haven't really seen that kind of euphoria. And people talk about it's the longest or one of the longest bull markets that people love to hate type of thing. So I think that kind of fits along with your thesis, the way you were kind of describing it to me. But maybe you could touch on that piece and how you're thinking about that a little bit. Um, Yeah, I mean, on how I'm I'm sort of bullish risk assets in the S&P. Yeah. And and do you foresee this as being kind of a melt up and a blow off top? Obviously, we're going to have to have some kind of turn in the cycle at some point. Yeah. Um, But how how might that look? Or or several different scenarios that you could see playing out. Okay. So we've got to go back into the history of, of this year in equities a little bit to sort of get to my thesis. And I think it'll clear things up. If we look at it and say, you know, last year, going into the end of the year, commodities were really volatile in the fall. And then we saw that month end sort of, you know, mass exodus from risk assets, from crude oil, from the stock market, from everything into the end of the year, right? So that was a complete sort of overreaction, in my opinion, to a couple of things. That was an overreaction to, um, back in October, we had the Fed raise rates of 2018, and we had Saudi Arabia disappear Jamal Khashoggi in the beginning of October, right? So that started, those two events started an absolute risk-off quarter that ran right to the bell rang at the end of the year, right? So it turned a risk-off sell-off into a stop-loss sell-off into a tax-loss sell-off that pummeled the S&P last year into the end of the year. So now we start off in the new year. And sort of the coast is a lot clearer. So the stock market gets back on its feet. The economy is fairly strong. It looks like we finally turn um, the Federal Reserve chairman from hawk to dove. But the most important thing about it is that the S&P was bound between 2,800 and 3,000 the entire year. 
And mm-hmm. if, if you're a technician and you see the level of testing on the downside that we did first in May of last year, excuse me, June, yeah, May, June of last year, then we had this really aggressive test last year in the summertime in August. Um, if you look at the month of August, the S&P was as volatile as it's been, just back and forth between 2,800 and 2,900 in between moving averages. So to me, that's testing the downside. We tested the downside again in the fall, in October, and we came bouncing off the moving average through the highs. And I think that that's the move now that's going to be an adjustment to the upside that is sort of equal to the misalignment on the downside in December. Right, so if the S and P went two or three hundred points too far in the downside in December, got back on its feet, consolidated around twenty nine hundred. My guess is it's going to go two hundred or three hundred points to the upside now that the coast is clear. Now that you know the Trump, you know Trump is much more in the clear now than he's been all year with the Mueller investigation, the whole thing. The impeachment is completely going absurdly poorly, and I feel like the market can now rally as an over and a sort of opposite overreaction on the upside. Mm-hmm. So we know, and when we get up toward 3,200, 3,300, that's when I will let out all the length that I've accumulated in the last two weeks and sort of look for spots to say, okay, this is maybe the end of that overreaction. But I'll be careful with that too, because I like to be bullish the stock market in this insanely secular bull trend. Right. And that will goes along with your thesis as far as yields uh, rising as well. Yeah. Um, so that's a really interesting way to put it. So as far as the trading mentality and the trading strategy that you take, talk to us a little bit about you know, TG Macro and, and what you do. Obviously, you can talk a little bit about uh, Real Vision as well. Sure. But I think you bring that a uh, really interesting perspective. Sure. I, um, Ryan, I guess the best way to... to- say it would be in my newsletter, I try to, it's called the morning navigator. And I write a note every morning, which I think requires tremendous discipline. And it's a discipline that I've learned since I was a commodity trader at Goldman Sachs in the nineties. I mean, that's when I started journaling markets. Um, as an equity sales trader, I was constantly, I had a newsletter that I wrote to my clients every morning sort of thing. And that morphed into the product that I created now. And what that is, is sort of trying to teach people where to look in the morning, where to make money every day. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a very different arena every day. And sometimes it is in the arena that the sort of mainstream is in. And sometimes it is in the dark corner that nobody is talking about, but it's an interesting stock move and it's into heavy support or heavy resistance or something like that. But within my note, I like to try to identify trends where I can find them and identify entry points in those trends and prove to clients sort of that you can get into trending commodities that have or, or trending securities that have been trending for a long time. It's just about navigating them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, you know, you you have to sit here and say, okay, well, I'm gonna be trading for the next 20 years. I'd love to find something that's gonna trend higher from today for the next 20 years, right? So if I start thinking in my mind about those kind of things, like what would I like to be long and work myself back into what so what, what sort of products I want to be looking at trading today, right? So that's maybe a little bit too long term. But what I do is I start off in the morning and I've kind of weeded out every news story that I've gone over and I've decided, look, this is what's going on today. 
Um, this is, I think, where the best chances of finding some volatility or, or sort of uh, reinforcing some beliefs and some positions that I've discussed. So what, hap- what winds up happening is we put on some longs and some shorts, for example, in the equity market, and the shorts get themselves stopped out with really disciplined stop losses. And so the longs now have been running. And mm-hmm. so this is just the kind of thing where, you know, I, I, I was very vocal about it, for example, when the S&P broke above 3000 just this time that I thought this was the move that the S&P was going to be moving to another level. And so this was a time when we should be, you know, sort of risk on mode. And, you know, I, I'm trying to just sort of very in a very um, in a very self-deprecating and honest way say, look, I'm going to be wrong as a trader. I still believe that I can be right a little bit more than I'm going to be wrong. But. If I maintain discipline when I'm wrong, and I really step on the gas a few times when I'm right, we're going to have a big P&L this year. And so that's kind of how I mm-hmm. look at my year. And I'm always, you know, sort of, I've got these sort of seven or eight periphery ideas, but they're my, they're my big ideas. And then in one of those ideas, I'll find sort of the trade of the year where, where, you know, I'll be able to write about something from the inception, from when it starts and the thing will go well. And we'll be able to talk about it when I do my year end review and say, okay, well, that was a, that was a good call this year. And we'll still in it. Let's take a snapshot of it here and see where we are going into next year, you know, long gold and long the S and P and, you know, short bonds. And we'll see how these things work out. And really it's just, um, it's really just a question, Ryan, of, of bringing people through the discipline of choosing your risk reward and being able to um, stay disciplined with your profits and losses, letting your profits run with trailing stop losses and getting out of your losses with you know immediate stop loss action and trying not to beat yourself up too much about it. Yeah, it's really interesting because that's the one thing I think that, think that sets apart traders among many things. But being able to have that risk management and you know throw away ego and be able to cut losses quicker, yeah. and be able to turn things around. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, it's about getting the ship. Or it's always about getting the ship right sided, and that's a term that I used on the floor quite a bit as a, as a commodity trader. Um, both on the floor and at Jay Aaron, Goldman Sachs upstairs and at UBS. And it was always like, all right, we got to get the ship right sided now, you know, so we're going with, you know, with, with uh, some tailwinds and wind at our sails, et cetera. Yeah. So that's kind of how I turned it into uh, navigating markets in my morning newsletter. Yeah. And you, you mentioned working at Goldman. I, I was reading a while ago about the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index yeah. now named uh, S&P. You know, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. Yeah, that was our baby. Yeah, so developed in 1991, right around the time you were there. So talk a little bit about that and the institutionalization of, of commodities and being kind of there at the ground floor. Yeah, that was an exciting time, I'll tell you. And I, and I wish I was a little bit older when I was there so that I could have really understood it. At the time, I was really just out of college. I was, um, you know, it was my second, uh, third, excuse me, my third job out of college. And I had been at Sumitomo Bank for two years. I'd been at UBS for two years in currencies and commodities. And then I joined the New York Yankees, which was the J. Aaron division of Goldman Sachs, where sort of everything is on a next level of intensity and and um, rigor, so to speak. So I would say that uh, from back then, um, there was a gentleman at Goldman Sachs named Tim O'Neill that realized that there were all of these backward dated situations in commodities, right? So backward dated, meaning the front month trading to a premium to the next set of uh, back months. 
And if you wanted to play the commodity from a bullish perspective, the commodity markets that you could be in these markets, you would have a positive carry and they would appreciate over time. And you would continue to earn this positive carry as long as we continue to um, have these sort of global shortages of commodities that lent to steep supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. And so he developed this Goldman Sachs Commodities Index, which was a basket of 22 world uh, globally production weighted commodities. So the biggest ones were the crude oil market, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and where investors on institutional and retail level could take advantage, number one, of buying a basket of commodities and having exposure to the commodity markets, which prior to that was probably pretty difficult. And number two, to be able to take advantage of this extraordinary investment opportunity where there were so many commodities that were purely and clearly backwardated that you had so much room in the carry and the role of this product that you were in to be wrong that it became a really, really popular hedge and sort of a sliver of real portfolios um, for, for a lot of both you know, investment companies and corporations to hold. So, and I think, you know, a lot of the beauty was back then was that, um, you know, at the start of it, oil was 10 bit at $12. I mean, gold was 250 bit at 400. Nobody cares. Nat mm -hmm. Natural gas was, you know, two bit at three. Nobody cares. And, um, you know, they just had these structural backwardations in it. And that, you know, led to this huge, huge flow of investor, uh, investor money. And they made so much money from the 90s into the early 2000s. I couldn't even I couldn't even gather how much they read. You know, they rolled with positive carry. Commodities were just, you know, they were sideways to higher. And, and then, you know, we said that commodity, you know, the super run, um, the super commodity bull run, I guess, from 2000 or so to 2010. That was just, you know, China buying everything. And I think that was sort of you know the ultimate payday of the people in the Goldman Sachs Commodities Index. Yeah, that's super interesting. How you were there right when everything was get, kind of getting launched. Yeah, um, on the institutionalization of it. Now, going to you mentioned gold, and we talked a little about commodities. Going to how you're looking at the dollar. So when you look at the Dixie, people have been kind of watching this and saying, okay, there, there probably should have been a lot more weakness based on what people were expecting in global markets. And now we're kind of in this situation where maybe there's this melt up yeah. again, similar to equities, and then maybe long term, you know, people are a little more bearish. But how are you looking at the dollar? You know, we can talk about it compared to gold, compared to uh, yeah. various things. But yeah, my my, I have a very central one of my central views to my view matrix is that I call it riding with the king, which is riding with the king dollar, which means mm -hmm. that we are um, secular dollar bulls. The way I'm looking at the dollar currently is if I sort of look at it on a. Um, if I look at it on the in the last 10 years, let's call it, if you call the dollar index in the last 10 years, for the last five of it, the dollar index has really been between 86 and 105. And for the last, say, I don't know, three years of it, the dollar index has been between 92 and 98. So to me, the dollar index is sort of in the middle of the middle of the middle of the range. Right. Yeah. And I sort of, you know, I, 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 I try to stop myself, Ryan, but I lightly scoff at the people that I see on FinTwit that are having these toe to toe drag out fights about whether the dollar is going to exist as a reserve currency. 
Yeah. And, and I'm literally like, I mean, I don't even know what movie these guys are watching. You know, I don't know what papers they're reading, but I don't see anything unseating the dollar as the no alternative as the best investment center. I mean, it's the closest place to the to find the rule of law being applied, you know, across currency, across the currency baskets. Um, you know, I do think that Bitcoin is becoming an attractive type of looking investment, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to purebred currencies linked to to countries and sovereigns, I don't think that the dollar is ever in danger. So let's talk about it where it relates to other things. Um, I've been writing about it that since the Trump administration, um, we've seen the dollar as wrecking ball. You know, it's been sort of totally, uh, you know, it's been destroying Europe, uh, Asian currencies. It's been hard on European currencies. Um, I would say that if you're going to own something of value, you've got to say, okay, well, I need to own some dollars. I need to own some gold. I need to own some mm -hmm. Bitcoin. You know, so that's sort of literally how I have my sort of retirement type of posture, you know, and um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, you own gold physical and um, on paper and you, you know, own some Bitcoin the same way if you have the means. And, you know, the dollar is the kind of thing where, you know, you, you have those things as a hedge, but, you know, the, it used to be the kind of thing where it was you needed the gold, the gold in your portfolio to sleep at night because we were debasing the dollar. And now, mm -hmm. when you look around the world and say, "Oh, everybody else is debasing theirs too," so I don't need as much gold, and maybe I can sleep a little better at night. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think for many years, as you talked about, there was that op-ed written warning Bernanke about all this inflation that was coming yes. and. And you, and you mentioned yourself being worried, and I, I, felt I, I was too, yep. <laughs> many, many others. And that's one of the central reasons I actually started the podcast was to kind of explore that in a little more detail and really looking at mistakes were made. And we talked about you know cutting losses, and, and as I, you mentioned, it, that's a great way to put it, kind of riding the ship. Yeah. And now I think we're we're what almost over ten years uh, since that, right. and I think we've we've learned a lot. Finally, yeah, <laughs> finally we were people are kind of waking up and realizing that the inflation hasn't showed shown up in that CPI. So let's talk a little bit about to close. <clears throat> You there's know, one thing, one thing, Ryan, Ryan, one thing I want to mention, and I don't mean to cut you off. There's one thing that I want that, that I think is an important point I, I, that uh, resonates with me is that what I think I learned during that whole episode is that deflation is more invisible than you think, mm -hmm. you know? So it's like this enormous, enormous force, this force, but you kind of take advantage of it and you don't even realize it, right? Like you're ordering things on the internet that get delivered the next day for free, right? That's become like a given. And so, you know, that's so insanely deflationary that you can't even get your head around it, you know, when you're terms of counting consumer prices and things like that. So you just have to remember that there are these huge balances to the inflationary things that you see, like your healthcare and your, your education costs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are wildly deflationary things that are going on that you barely take notice of. And so that's something that I've learned to look out for. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I saw a tweet going around talking about it was Blockbuster Video. They employed like something over eighty thousand people, right. eighty five thousand people on Netflix employs. I think it was five thousand. Right. So that's a really great example. Insane. Yeah. People can actually understand. We all, you know, if you're old enough to remember, right? <laughs> it's a Blockbuster Video, and now obviously we. I remember when they it was it was the VHS, and then. Yep. DVDs were just coming onto the scene. Yeah. 
And then, you know, everyone obviously understands uh, streaming and it's all a part of our lives now. And, and we understand the certain jobs. You look at, uh, you know, computer programming and things being in huge demand and, and, and having those, in, those uh, efficiencies where you don't need this huge labor force right, right, of right. lower skilled labor, yeah. especially. So, and, and that brings us into a talk about Real Vision, obviously a streaming service, and, and you've been providing some great content on there. Yeah. Uh, one of the big themes is the debt deflation demographics. So talk a little bit about maybe what you've learned from interviewing people and, and being involved with Real Vision and having that as kind of a central theme th- throughout the past year or two. Yeah, I mean, the Real Vision experience has been great for me because we sort of launched, uh, I launched my own business and Real Vision launched themselves as a financial television platform with the exact same thing in mind. And that, yeah. that was that the way that financial news and financial research and content was being delivered was going to dramatically change alongside this change that uh, we were experiencing, like we just discussed, the way that we changed consuming everything, right? Every The way we changed consuming all of our content. I mean, we went from sitting next to each other on the trains reading newspapers to sitting next to each other on the trains reading digital devices, you know, and in that change is going to come a drastic change in the way financial content was created. Um, so we decided to jump on that sort of train together simultaneously, but separately. And then I ran into Raul in another, um, you know, in another way. And so we realized that we were on the same path and it became a good idea for us to put our heads together and do some work together. So in learning, um, I guess what else I've learned about the credit markets and the debt, you know, expansion, which is a major theme with everybody that you talk to, is that mm-hmm. to be honest with you, I've gotten less and less afraid of it. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the propaganda working or maybe that's just the sort of uh, normalcy effect taking over. But, you know, you realize that bigger amounts of debt are serviceable in, you know, uh, sort of expanding economies, you know, and, you know, bigger debt loads are sort of accountable in an expanding economy, both population wise, like we're seeing in India and China and real growth economies. So, you know, the Strengthening the economy can foot a lot of this leverage. So the thing is, you got to be prepared for and build in a scenario for what things are you going to start to see or what securities do you want to have already sitting in your portfolio to protect you from such a move? You know, and and that's the sort of um, something that I came across in the last interview that I that I was sort of found enlightening. I interviewed a gentleman named Vitali Katzenelson, um, as who is a value investor, and I very much appreciated his views on having a um, all terrain portfolio. You know, mm-hmm. and he's trying to look literally at at stocks from the bottom up and say, okay, which one, which companies, which sectors are going to sort of not be much affected by crazy gyrations in politics or gyrations in the economy and this and that. And, you know, he came up with being long healthcare, you know, being long the basics of healthcare. And, uh, you know, I, yeah. I had, yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about, uh, you know, healthcare as any sort of a hedge or anything in my portfolio. And rather I thought about it as sort of uh, something a little bit more risky as, it, as the healthcare sector is definitely about to undergo some sort of dramatic transformation, right? Like I think Amazon is probably going to figure out how to take it over if they're smart 
or yeah. or there'll be some sort of a new mechanism. You know, I don't know what it's going to be, but healthcare is definitely going to change in this country. And it's interesting for you know a value investor to say, yeah, like I'd rather buy some drug companies and and be long you know aspirin companies that are sort of bulletproof and some more consumer product companies. And it's just you know thinking about ways to insulate your portfolio a little bit against what would happen if we have a real credit crisis and bond markets start crashing and yields start flying higher and we have god forbid we have an episode of you know hyperinflation you know you have to think of what do i have to be long you know and so i look around and i say okay i've got some coins in my vault that will protect me from that hopefully um you know and i've got some uh, equities in my portfolio that maybe will survive or at least i can sort of like shop for some that might survive um yeah. and, and look at it that way but it's definitely something that you become you know, I don't want to say immune to, but you become sort of work. Yeah, you you develop a working cognizant relationship with the size of the credit and the debt that's going on around the world. If that's fair to say. Yeah, I think one thing that people have really been talking about, and it's been a huge debate, obviously, but coming to terms with the fact, I'll phrase it, that sovereign debt really can't be looked at the same as corporate or personal balance sheet, Correct. and it's it's really comparing you know two separate. Very different things. Correct. So, well, this was great, Tony. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can find your work and uh, talk about some of the products there at TG Macro for listeners that want to yeah. get access to your uh, uh, Super kind of you, Ryan. Yeah, I mean, my website is at tgmacro.com. Um, it is fairly straightforward um, and transactional and explains exactly what I do. Um, I write a daily newsletter called The Morning Navigator. Um, that has been really popular with a very a wide variety of um, great clients and investors, including a lot of wealth advisors, a lot of um, RIAs, a lot of money managers, portfolio managers, American farmers. I mean, I've got a great group of people that read my note and interact every day. And my network is actually part of the reason that my note is so, um, I guess, and vibrant because I'm in constant contact with all those different types of investors that I just mentioned. And I kind of use the feedback to fuel my note so that it's always talking about topical stuff, identifying really good risk reward, getting out of trades that aren't working. And I've got a couple of good um, you know, client uh, comments down at the bottom of my website that I kind of let speak for themselves. And those are real people that um, I've got references for if anybody wanted to you know, talk to somebody that uses my work. But I've had generally very happy clients this year. Um, I try to write uh, my one sort of mandate for my morning navigator newsletter is to not take myself too seriously. And that details having a study break at the end, which is a sort of human interest section that that sort of everybody loves. And I found that to be a really, really rewarding part of um, the financial publication because people always people may not call me back and fight with me about my view on Netflix, but they will definitely call me back and fight with me about my view on sort of the Foo Fighters. <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah. so, so that's a, uh, so that's a fun way to sort of, you know, get, get people uh, communicating with you. So it's a very interactive publication and that's my daily newsletter. And then to be super brief, I have got it in more institutional level package, um, that includes more correspondence from me and two extra, um, reports per month that entail my formal analysis on the themes that I'm talking about and investing in, in the newsletter. And like I said, I've got tons of references. People are really happy, especially this year. Um, this is my third year of writing. Writing the note um, and my growth is 
pretty pretty solid so far. Um, I will be planning my first conference to take place in 2020, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, and I will be announcing the date in December. And that is going to be a great event with some high profile people that I think a lot of people in the metro area will want to hear from. And that's it, man. You can find and learn more about me at tgmacro.com. I'm on Twitter at tgmacro. Um, if you want to send me an email, it's Tony at TG Macro. And uh, this was a really fun interview, Ryan. You asked some really, really great questions that not a lot of other interviewers have asked me. All right. Well, great. So uh, thank you so much, Tony. And um, really appreciate it. Very welcome, Ryan. That was a great interview, man. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.